0: The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at ShadesValley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Yard signs are an interesting thing to me. Uh, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? Like those little cardboard or, or plastic signs that people place in their front lawns to show their support of someone or something they value, something that's worth something to them. Like if you, drive, if you drive through my neighborhood, you can see these things everywhere. Some are political, some are patriotic, some are just decorative. Many of them are, believe it or not, I know this is hard to believe, but many of them are sports-related. There's like this one house that goes way beyond the typical yard sign, and they literally mow the words roll tide into their grass. (laughs) (laughs) But all of these people are putting up signs to say, here's what I value. Here's what I find to be of worth, and I think that you should support and value this too. These signs serve as a witness to worth. In the book of Philippians, I think that the Apostle Paul has been showing us that every last one of us has a sign that serves as a witness to what we believe is of ultimate worth. It's not... It's not a sign that's placed on our front lawn, but projected forth from our lives. It's it's not a sign that's made out of cardboard or plastic. No, it's made out of joy. Joy is the sign. What does your sign say? Like, what is the joy of your life? Your joy is... Serves as as a sign to what you value most, to to what you treasure. You want to know what you believe is of ultimate worth. Where do you find, or or at least seek? Maybe you haven't found it, but where do you seek your joy? Joy is the sign. What does yours say? What what does our sign say? Shades like as a as a church, as the as a body of believers. What or who do we find to be of ultimate worth? If we want to know, all we got to do is look to where we seek our joy. Joy is the sign. What does ours say to the world? Like, like what does our witness say is of ultimate worth? I I know how I, and, and we want to answer that question. I want to answer that question. Christ. Jesus is my joy. Joy is a sign. What does mine say? It says Jesus. That's how I want to answer the question. But but Shades, if we are honest, that's as easy to say as sticking a sign in your front yard. Like it's, it's easy to say Jesus is our joy. How are we actually going to show the world that Jesus is our joy? How are we going to hold up a sign before the world that points to the ultimate worth of Christ? I believe that this is precisely what the Apostle Paul answers for us right here at the end of Philippians 1. And his answer, I think, has three pieces. For the rest of our time, we're going to take each of these three pieces one at a time, and we're going to dive right in. So number one, Shades, how are we going to rejoice in Jesus to show his worth to the world? Number one, by living as faithful citizens of heaven. By living as faithful citizens. Don't worry, we're going to unpack all this. By living as faithful citizens of heaven. Look at verse 27. Paul writes, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel." of Christ. Shades, this is a pivotal moment in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Like, up to this point, Paul has been focused primarily on his own circumstances. I mean, remember, Paul is actually, he's writing this letter from prison in Rome. The Philippians know that, and they're concerned about him, so he's been writing to tell them what's going on with him. Yeah, I'm in prison, yes, in Rome, but I still have joy and he's shown them, it's right, even though I'm here and in these circles, it's right for me to have joy. Because Philippi, I'm reinterpreting all the events of my life through the lens of the glory of Christ. And guess what? My imprisonment is actually glorifying Jesus. It's furthering the gospel in Rome, both inside this prison and outside this prison. So I rejoice because Jesus is my joy. And so when Christ is glorified, Paul's joy is magnified. And he tells Philippi that he knows Christ is going to be glorified in his life no matter what. Now he doesn't know how his imprisonment is going to turn out, whether he'll be released or whether he will be put to death. But he says live or die, Christ will be glorified. Because if I live, I treasure Christ most in life. And if I die, I will die treasuring him more than life. Christ will be glorified. My joy will be magnified. Joy wins now, Paul pivots. He he turns from himself towards the Philippians, and he wants them to see now how joy wins in them. He wants them to see how for them to live is Christ, and for them to die is is gain. Everything that he said about his own life and situation, Paul now turns in verse 27 and he applies it all to the Philippians' life and situation. This is a a pivotal turn in the letter from Paul to Philippi. Everything has been building to this moment and everything after this is going to flow from this moment. If the letter has a thesis statement, for all my English teachers out there, if this letter has a thesis statement, this is it. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. You can hear the centrality of this sentence in its first word. Only. Or the Greek word there could actually be paraphrased, just one thing. Just one thing. Philippi. Paul is uh, he's pulling a classic preacher move right here. And he's basically saying, if you only hear one thing today you have all heard preachers say that, right? If you only hear one thing today, hear this. Like, this is the thing to hear. And that's, that's what Paul Just one thing. What is it, Paul? Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. It sounds odd to us. Worthy of the gospel. Paul, are you, are you saying that I've got to live in a way that proves I'm worthy? That proves I'm deserving of the gospel of Christ? Are you saying that I've got to earn christ no not at all to live in a manner worthy of the gospel means to live in a way that displays the worth of the gospel of christ like philippine you've already received christ through the gospel you didn't earn him you already have him the good news of the gospel is that he was given to you jesus was given to you freely as your treasure so treasure him that's what he's saying. Live now that you have him, treasure him. Live in a way that displays his worth. Live a life that accords with, fits with the treasure that you've received. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's, um, it's kind of like the Downton Abbey movie. Okay, if you're not a fan, I promise this will make sense. Uh, in the Downton Abbey movie, the king and the queen of England are coming for a visit And Dalton has to make like all sorts of preparations, not to earn a visit, not to earn the presence of the king or the queen. No, king and queen are coming regardless. But they want to make Dalton accord with, fit with the royals that they are receiving. They want Dalton to display the worth of the king and the queen. Paul says, just one thing, Philippi, just one thing, Shades. Let your manner of life display the worth of your Christ. Let it be a sign to the world of the worth of Jesus. How, Paul? How do I do that? He's he's actually already begun telling us how, through the phrase, let your manner of life. If you look in your Bible, you probably have a footnote right there. If you're in the ESV, you definitely have a footnote right there. And it probably says something along the lines of this phrase could be translated, I would say should be translated, behave or live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Polituomai is the Greek behind this. You can can hear the Greek word, I tell it to you because you can hear the Greek word polis, which means city, from which we get our word politics. Like, Like this has to do with civics. It has to do with citizenship. Paul isn't speaking to the Philippians individually saying, okay, let your manner of life. He's speaking to them collectively saying, let your citizenship, be worthy of the gospel of Christ. As you live as citizens, display the worth of Christ. Philippi would have heard this word this way because if you recall all the way from the beginning of our study, Philippi is a Roman colony in Macedonia. If you know anything about colonies, all right, they are primarily tied to the place they come from, not the place they are. Their goal is to bring life from the way it was done there to the way it is here. That's what colonies do. There's a reason that we as Americans still live more like Europeans than we live like the way Native Americans did. Because we began as colonies who sought to bring a way of life this way. Right or wrong or otherwise, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is that Philippi is a Roman colony in Macedonia. Its inhabitants are very proud of their Roman citizenship. In fact, they do everything they can To basically be a little version of Rome. The people wore traditional Roman dress. They spoke in Latin. Even the city's layout and its architecture mimicked Mother Rome. So as a colony, Philippi was like an outpost of Rome in Macedonia. They were there to live as citizens that displayed the worth of Rome. It's into that context that Paul says to the Philippian Christians, just one thing. Just one thing. Display the worth of Christ as citizens. Not of Rome, but as citizens of a different kingdom altogether. Christ's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven. I know that's what he means because he's calling Philippi to display the worth of Christ, not the worth of Rome. Rome. It's going to get real explicit later in the letter if you go to Philippians chapter 3 and verse 20 to be exact. Paul will explicitly remind the Philippians that their citizenship is in heaven. Philippi. Paul's saying, Philippi, how how are you going to show the worth of Jesus to the world by living as faithful citizens of heaven? In other words, in your city, it may be a your city may be a colony of Rome in Macedonia, but you, the church, are a colony of heaven in Philippi. Like all the citizens around you, it may be the joy of all the citizens around you to dress as Romans, speak as Romans, do everything they can to mimic Mother Rome and display its worth. But your joy... Your joy is to display the worth of Jesus in all that you say, in all that you do. The very architecture of your life is to display the supreme worth of the glory of Christ. You don't do what all these other citizens do, valuing the things they value, holding those things up as worth. No, you live as a citizen of the kingdom of Christ that displays his worth. Shades, are we a colony of Christ in Birmingham? Are, are we living as faithful citizens of heaven? But do our lives, and all that we say and in all that we do, do they display the worth of our king and his kingdom that's coming? He is our joy. Or do our lives betray the truth that our joy is the same as the world's? It's the kings and the kingdoms that are already here. Shades, we, uh, we live in a politically charged culture. And people look to politics on the right and on the left They look to politics to usher in some kind of salvation that will give them a foundation for joy. But shades, there is only one true Savior and we are to live as faithful citizens of His kingdom and point the world to the one sure foundation that is Christ and His coming kingdom and that is the only source of joy now and forever. Shades, I would beg you, please, please hear my heart. I am not telling you that it is wrong for us, I'm not, I'm not telling you that it is wrong for us as Christians to be politically involved or engaged with the issues in our country. I'm not telling you that we shouldn't fulfill our civic duties and be good American citizens. But I am telling you that we are Christians before we are Americans. And that we belong to the kingdom of heaven. And Shades, if we give our allegiance to any other kingdom, to the point that we are incapable of critiquing it, then we have sold our birthright for a bowl of beans. Do you you get that reference? Do you get what I'm saying? If you go back to Genesis chapter 25, you can look at the story of Jacob and Esau. How Esau, an older brother, sold his birthright, his right, what was his, by being the firstborn. He sold his birthright to his younger brother Jacob for a bowl of stew because his tummy was hungry. In other words, he gave up something of greater value. Just because he couldn't see the value of it in the moment. He gave up something of greater value that was his by virtue of who his father was gave up something of greater value just to gain what he thought he needed most in the moment. And Shade, shade if, if, if we are a colony of Christ and we give up testifying to the coming kingdom of God, if we, if we compromise our integrity of testifying to the coming kingdom of God that Daniel 2 says will crush one day all of our current kingdom. We give up testifying to the coming kingdom of God in order to gain temporary power within a political party. We've sold our birthright for a bowl of beans. We compromise everything the kingdom of God stands for just to further an agenda on the right or the left. We're selling our birthright of the power of the coming kingdom for a bowl of stew called political power. Shades, do we want to show this world the worth of Jesus? And we live as faithful citizens of the kingdom of heaven, seeking our joy in Christ, not in the power structures of this world. We don't look to them for salvation. We don't panic when they fall apart. No, because Christ is our joy and he is a king who is reigning and who will reign forever. Shades, joy is the sign. What does our sign say? I pray that it says Jesus. We seek joy in Jesus and display his worth to the world by living as faithful citizens of heaven. That's the first piece that Paul hands us, but he doesn't stop there. He continues unpacking for us what our faithful citizenship is supposed to look like. He keeps telling us, in other words, how to rejoice in Jesus and show his worth to the world. So how? Number two, by living in fervent unity with one another. By living in fervent unity with one another. How how do we rejoice in Jesus and show forth his worth to the world? By living in fervent unity with one another. Look at verse 27 again, but let's keep reading this time. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul says this this whole living as citizens of heaven so that you display the worth of Christ thing, yeah, you've got to do that together, Philippi. I'm like, maybe I'll get out of prison and be able to come and help you do that, but maybe not. But Philippi, even if I, did you see what Paul says? Even if he doesn't get to come and help them, he says they have another helper, the Holy Spirit, who will empower them to stand firm together. Did you see that in the text? I know that in most translations, uh, when Paul writes standing firm in one spirit, uh, the word spirit there in most translations is not capitalized. But I believe that it should be. It's a reference to the Holy Spirit. Everywhere else that Paul uses this Greek wording, it is clearly a reference to the Holy Spirit. And further, if you remember from two weeks ago when we were in verses 18 to 26, Paul showed us that we treasure Christ by the Spirit's power provided through who? God's people. As we pray for one another, as we proclaim the gospel to one another, as we are the loving presence of Christ with one another, the Spirit is empowering us as he works through us to each other. And now Paul says to Philippi, do that. Be empowered by the Holy Spirit to stand firm together. Be empowered by the Holy Spirit to stand firm, valuing Christ most in life. Stand firm in that together, Philippi. Pray it for one another. Preach it to one another. Be present to speak it into one another's lives. Stand firm in the power of the Holy Spirit to value Christ most in life, to be unified in that. And Paul says he wants them to be unified in that fervently. Did you see that? He says, I want you to be of one mind, striving. That's where I'm getting the word fervent from. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. This is a fervent unity. In other words, it's not passive. It is a passionate pursuit of of unity. It's a striving for, for a unity that longs to further the faith of the gospel. It longs to show the world the worth of Christ. Paul says it does that by being of one mind. Once you to strive side by side for unity, to show the world the worth of Christ. How's that going to happen? It happens by you being of one mind. What does that mean? I actually think that that translation is a little bit misleading because the Greek word for here is not the word for mind at all. It's the Greek word suke, which means soul. To be of one soul, not to be of one mind. Mind, I think it's a little bit misleading because when we hear that, be of one mind, it makes it sound like our unity comes from us being in agreement about how we think about everything. We're unified if we, if we think the same about everything, shades. Just to let you know, the church has never done that. Ever be a student of church history, be a student of the church in present. We have never agreed how we think about or teach about everything. If that's the kind of unity that Paul means, we might as well give up now. I mean, James, do you know how much diversity of thought there is in the church? Do you know how much diversity of thought there is in our church? Like We are a melting pot, and that includes theologically. If you need everybody in this room to be on the exact same page as you doctrinally, you will not survive here. Like There are a whole host of issues that we differ on. I know, you take me to coffee about them. (laughs) There's a host of issues that we differ on. Now, as soon as I say that, obviously there is a core that we call Christian orthodoxy. That we all agree upon, otherwise you cannot rightly say you're a Christian. If you're denying the resurrection of Christ, you're you're not in this thing that we're calling Christianity. There's a core of Christian orthodoxy. But within orthodoxy, there are so many other doctrinal issues about which Christians disagree. We're not of one mind. Does this mean that we cannot have unity? Unity. Shades, this is so relevant to us as doctrinal disagreements amongst Christians have been in the headlines just a bit this past week. And they've been in the headlines in such a way that it makes it seem like unity is impossible. But, Shades, we are committed to fervently fight for unity here, not uniformity. But unity. Shades. We we may disagree about many different things, but we will fervently fight for unity. And, and right here, in light of the religious news and headlines and social media outrage, right here, I especially want to say something this morning to my sisters in Christ. Dear sisters, we, You and I, we may doctrinally disagree on a whole host of various issues. But here, you will not be disrespected, disregarded, or dismissed. You will not be told to go home because you are home. The church is your home. Home And by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will fervently fight for unity. Not primarily of mind, but of soul. What does that mean? Paul goes on to describe unity of soul in much greater detail in chapter 2. Where he tells us that unity of soul doesn't act out of selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, it counts others as more significant than oneself. Unity of soul looks out for the interest of others. This this unity, he will use the word mind there, not because we all think the same way, but because we take the same mindset. This kind of unity takes this mindset, thinks this way because it is the very mindset of Christ. This is one soul unity, acting as if we are one body with one soul and we act in the best interest of that one body. I'm one body with one soul. My various members don't act in their own best interest. They act in the interest of the whole. That's one soul unity. That's the kind of unity that we fervently fight for. Where we humble ourselves, consider the needs of the others as even more important than our our own. Acting as one body with one soul, we act in the best interest of that one body. We fervently fight for our souls and our hearts to be united. United in what? What's the glue that's holding them together? Paul says it, it's the furtherance of the gospel. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That the Greek terminology right there, striving side by side, it's athletic terminology. It's it's like he's describing us as a football offensive line, striving together as a singular unit to move the ball of the gospel forward. And shades our very unity does that. It is our very unity that moves the ball of the gospel forward, that displays the worth of Christ to the world. Our fervent unity displays the worth of Christ as we sacrifice our own desires for the sake of treasuring Christ together, as we show the world something is more important to me than all of these people thinking the exact same way that I do. Christ and the gospel going forward is more important. We're displaying to the world the worth of the gospel. And that display is especially bright and amplified in our current culture. Because our current culture doesn't know anything about this kind of unity. Like, unity within our culture right now is thought to be impossible to achieve with anyone unless they think exactly like I do. Like, if they don't think the way that I do, there cannot be unity. But when this world sees a people who think differently, yet they are fighting for a unity, then the world's got to know there's got to be something that's drawing them together. There's got to be something keeping them together that is worth more than everything else in their lives. We do have something holding us together, keeping us together, that's worth more than any of my personal preferences, thoughts, or opinions. And his name is Jesus. He's our joy shades. Joy is the sign. What does our say? May it say, Jesus, we seek joy in Jesus and display his worth to the world by living in fervent unity with one another. Paul's got one more way to show us One more way to tell us about that we can show the world the worth of Jesus. So number three, last one. How do we rejoice in Jesus, show his worth to the world? Number three, by living with fearless faith in our sovereign God. By living with fearless faith in our sovereign God. Look at verses 28 to 30. Paul has just given us a positive instruction I want you to be fervently unified in advancing the gospel. Now he's going to give a negative instruction, basically saying as you do that, as you advance the gospel together, here's what you don't do. Look at verse 28. And not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. The gospel's been opposed in Philippi from day one. You can read about it, Acts chapter 16, like the first day that Paul shows up in Philippi or the first time he shows up in Philippi, he ends up in prison. Here he is 10 years later, writing to them from prison again, this time in Rome. Opposition to the gospel has not died down for Paul at all. And it hasn't died down for the Philippian Christians either. Like, since the day that they came to faith, they have faced opposition. And Paul tells them, don't be frightened. Don't be frightened in anything by your opponents. I'm just like, how, Paul? Like, fear is a very natural feeling. You You don't tell yourself to be afraid. It just, it just happens. Like when you're camping and the shadow of a bear shows up on the side of your tent, you don't like have to add the clues together and logically conclude that fear is the right response. It just, it just happens. In Shades, in our culture, our faith faces much opposition more and more by the day that naturally, whether we want it to or not, it naturally causes us fear. Fear of ridicule, fear of job loss, fear of being thought of as backwards or or bigoted, fear, fear of being ostracized, fear of not knowing how to answer somebody's questions about our faith and looking foolish, fear of legal action. And here's the deal, Shay, like judging by the current direction that culture is trending, I would imagine that the lists of reasons to fear is only going to grow in number and intensity. This should not surprise us. 1 Peter 4.12, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Opposition shouldn't surprise us. In John 15.18, Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me first. Like, it's gonna happen. It, shouldn't surprise, it doesn't surprise our brothers and sisters around the globe, many of whom spend their lives under the threat of persecution. The, the only reason it surprises us in the comfortable West is because we're comfortable. It, it surprises us not because persecution is strange, but because we have graciously, undeservedly lived in a strange place in time without persecution. That's what's strange, and we've gotten used to it. And in that, we have developed what I call a functional prosperity theology. In our comfort, our use of not being persecuted, we have developed a functional prosperity theology. What do I mean by that? Well, most of you probably know what prosperity theology is. Prosperity theology is the concept, basically, that if you live a life faithful to God, he will make you prosperous. He'll give you health. He'll give you wealth. Those are usually the things attached to it. And if bad things are happening in your life, that's obviously a sign of God's displeasure. Now, I pray that all of us reject that prosperity theology outright. It is clearly unbiblical. I've argued against it many times. But here's my fear. I fear that while we reject that theology formally, like we say we do, while we reject that theology formally, we embrace it functionally with how we live. We reject it with our words, but we embrace it with our lives. In in other words, we live our lives as if the baseline premise of prosperity theology is true, that if I do right by God, he'll do right by me. He will bless me and give me the gifts that I think I deserve for my faithful service. In in other words, let me give you some examples of common ways I see this play out every day. Uh, The reasoning will go something like this. If I don't have sex before marriage... If I remain pure and date in the way, only in the way my youth pastor told me was the right way to date, then I will definitely get married and it will definitely be awesome. And when the marriage doesn't come or it does and it's hard, we feel like God's been unfaithful. We're surprised by the fiery trial because we did our part. Why isn't God doing his functional prosperity theology? Or could say, uh, I read all the Christian parenting books. I went to the conferences. I prepared to be the perfect Christian parent, which clearly Instagram tells everyone that I am Then the baby doesn't come. Or they do, and they rebel and they break your heart and they wonder from the Lord. And we are surprised by the fiery trial because we did our part and God isn't doing his. Functional prosperity theology. Or one more, I go, I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray. And what does that gain me in my cultural context? I'm, I'm not respected. I'm rejected. My culture labels me as unloving. And we're surprised by the fiery trial because we did our part, but God isn't doing his. Functional prosperity theology. Shades, when, when we live in this way and opposition comes, We panic in fear. Where is God in this? He's clearly abandoned me. He's clearly displeased with me. Everything I believed is a lie. We panic in fear and we run from the faith. I watch it happen all the time. And this is precisely what Paul is warning against. The Greek term for frightened in verse 28, it was a term that was often used to describe horses that were frightened. They were startled into a stampede. It describes panic. Paul is saying, don't panic. When you suffer, it's not a sign of God's displeasure, that he's angry with you or that he's absent from you. Don't panic. I don't think that Paul's words right here in verse 28 mean that we will never feel fear. But I do think they mean that when we feel it, we are empowered to be a people who do not panic. We live in a world of people who panic because the things that they find most valuable or the things that they trust in are constantly falling out from under them. If we are a people who panic, then our faith is not in a God who is sovereign. Our faith is in something else, probably that we were just trying to use God as a means to get. Our faith was in getting that marriage or in getting those children and getting that family and getting that job and getting that success and getting whatever it is you want to fill in the blank. And when it fell out, we panicked. We are not a people who panic. Why? Because no matter the opposition we face, we know it doesn't win for our God is sovereign. Look at verse 28 again. We're not frightened in anything by our opponents. Why? This is a clear sign to them of their destruction that they don't win but of your salvation that you do, and that is from God. In other words, when we face opposition and suffering, when we lose the things that this world values, health, wealth, safety, security, people we love, expectations we long for, when when we suffer and are opposed, but we do not panic and we do not run from the faith, then we put on display that our ultimate joy is Jesus not these other things, and though all around my soul gives way, he then at that moment is all my hope and stay, and I stand on the solid right rock of Christ and declare that all other ground is sinking sand. Shades, when we do that, when we do that, our lives declare to the world that everything they're hoping in is sinking sand. It won't last. And so the joy that they have tied to it won't last. When we do this, we become a huge billboard, a a sign that all the things they hope in are headed for destruction, which means so are they. But simultaneously, we become a sign that nothing can destroy our joy, for it is in Jesus, the only solid rock who will rule and reign forever. Our joy. Indestructible joy in Jesus becomes a billboard sign to the world that nothing can destroy our salvation, for our God is sovereign. He's even sovereign over the opposition that the world is throwing at us because what we just argued for, what we just saw, is that God is using that suffering for His purposes to display Himself as our greatest treasure. That's exactly what verse 29 says. Look at it. For it has been granted to you, it's been given to you, Charizomai, graced to you is the word. It has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ, for the glory of Christ, you should not only believe in Christ, but also suffer for His sake. This has been graced to you. In other words, just like God gave you the gift of faith by grace, opened your eyes to see the beauty and the glory of Christ. So also he has graciously given you the gift of suffering. Now that will kill some functional prosperity theology real quick. Suffering, a gift of the grace of God. And I want to step back from the text, and I want to say, Paul, I thought you just said that these were attacks. From our opponents, aimed to destroy our joy. And now you say that this is a gift from God, aimed to increase our joy. To which Paul will reply, Yes. Exactly. The Philippians' suffering and our suffering shades, it is from opponents. The affliction is from the enemy, Satan, and from them it is all aimed at destroying our joy in Jesus. It's meant to make us panic and flee from the faith. But our God is sovereign, even over our suffering. I don't care what our enemies or opponents intend through it. God's intention is quite different. And the evil will of mankind and Satan and the sovereign good, righteous will of God collide on the same event. And they mean it for evil. And God means it for His glory and your good. And guess what? He's sovereign. He wins. Every ounce of evil in your life is meant from the enemy to make you panic and flee from the faith. But God's sovereign over our suffering and He has a righteous and right purpose that our suffering might make us depend more on him, cling more to him tightly, that we might know more of the treasure of who he is and thus make his worth known to the world. This is exactly what Paul will say to us at the climax of his argument in Philippians 3 and verse 8. He says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul says, everything in my life that I thought was of value, that I thought I depended upon, through suffering, they've been knocked out one by one, like Jenga blocks, just knocked out one by one by one one until there's one block remaining. And you know what I discovered? It's Christ and he holds it all up. And the worth of Christ is revealed more and more to me and to the world the more things I lose. I've suffered the loss of all things in order that I might gain Christ no more and more of his power in my life to sustain me in the midst of suffering and show the world more and more. As I lose money, Christ is worth more than that. I'm still going to hang on to him. I'm not letting go. As I lose safety, as I lose health, as I lose all these things, I keep clinging to Christ because I told you he was my treasure. and Now I'm going to prove it. Suffering makes it a sign to the world of the worth of Jesus Christ. Shades, in all of your suffering, in all of the opposition that you face, you can talk about all of it in two ways. You can talk about it all as an evil attack. I'm not telling you, you gotta be like, oh, suffering, yay. No, you can talk about it as an evil attack from the enemy meant to destroy your joy. Paul talks that way. Just go read 2 Corinthians 12, where he talks about a thorn in his side. It was a messenger sent from Satan to destroy me. He talks about his suffering that way. You can too. And you can talk about it as a gift from God meant to increase your joy. Paul talks about his thorn that way too. It was given to me to keep me from becoming conceited. It made me depend more upon the grace of Christ. I learned in the midst of it that his grace is sufficient and his power is made perfect in weakness, so I will boast all the more of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest on me. Leave the thorn so that I can only walk forward by your power. I want to know you and your power. You can talk about your suffering as evil from the enemy meant to destroy your faith and as a gift from God meant to increase your Joy. This is the way that Joseph talks in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 when his brothers, when he speaks to his brothers who sold him into slavery. He says, What you did, you meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Shades, we see that reality, this whole reality, nowhere more clearly displayed than the cross. What man and Satan meant for evil, God was sovereignly ruling over it all. For his greatest glory and our greatest good, for the greatest gift of grace, the cross was grace, and so is our cross. Paul says, Philippi shades, "The world may mean their opposition to destroy your world, your, your joy in Jesus, but hear the good news of the gospel. God means it all for His glory and your good, and God wins. He. Wins. Paul says, You want to see that in reality. Shades, you want to see it in reality. Paul says, Look at me, Philippi. That's, what, that's how he closes in verse 30. He says, Look all the way back to the first time we met. You remember that? When I was thrown in prison? Remember the opposition and suffering that I faced? Did I panic, Philippi? No, our sovereign God empowered me to sing in a jail cell with undefeatable joy. And God shook that prison with an earthquake. And he shook the life of the jailer who came to faith in Christ and found his joy in Jesus. God sovereignly used Paul's fearless faith as a clear sign that he is worth more than all this world has to offer All that the world has to offer ends in destruction, but nothing can destroy the joy of those whose God is Jesus. Philippi, you saw it back then, and Philippi, you see it right now in my life too, he says in verse 30. As I've been writing to you this letter, I've told you God is still building this kind of sign in my life right now. I'm still being opposed, Philippi. I'm in jail right now. But through that opposition, God is graciously making the gospel go forth in this prison and outside of this prison. I'm reinterpreting all the events of my life through the lens of the glory of Christ so that for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. To die is gain and suffering is a gift, Philippi, because both of them magnify Christ, which magnifies my joy. And he ends by saying this in verse 30, Philippi, you are engaged in this same conflict too. Shades, you are engaged in this same conflict too. One in which we still experience the opposition of the world to our faith. One in which we can still show the world the worth of Christ. How? By our joy. Joy is the sign. What does ours say? Does it say we rejoice in the worth of the kingdoms of this world? Or do we live as faithful citizens of heaven with Jesus as our joy? That shows his worth to the world. Does our sign say that we rejoice in the worth of ourselves and our thoughts and our opinions, or do we live in fervent unity with one another, sacrificing ourselves to strive side by side for the spread of joy in Jesus? That is a sign to this world of his worth. Does our sign say that we rejoice in the worth of all the things this world values, or do we live with fearless faith in our sovereign God, willing to lose everything as long as we still have him as our joy. That is a sign of his worth to the world. Shades indestructible, undefeatable joy in Jesus is the sign to the world of his infinite and unfathomable worth. Joy is the sign. May ours say, Jesus.